You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is Rose Lounsbury. My name is Jackie Cummings-Koski. This is Justin Pogue, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I was at, of all places, an amusement park. The kids had run off to hop on some terrifying roller coaster or another, and the adults were lounging around the beer garden, musing about the days before Vertigo had overtaken their sense of adventure. A friend of mine, a German gentleman on holiday, struck up a conversation with me about personal finance. He had heard of my interest in financial independence and was intrigued. Open to the idea, we dove down the rabbit hole of defining what is enough and when one could truly retire early. In the midst of our conversation, a complete stranger sitting in our vicinity and listening intently jumped in unabashedly. It's impossible, he said. There's no way your average worker in America could amass a million dollars so quickly. There's no way that a non-doctor, a non-lawyer, or a non-engineer with a couple of kids could do that. His vehemence signaled to me that the conversation would be short-lived. And indeed, in a few moments, he got up and left. He was making a statement, not putting forth an argument. I can't say, however, that he didn't have a point. Although I knew many who had done it unless, it was easy for me to champion such ideas on my doctor's salary, lack of debt, and overall good luck. But, but, there are many in our community who seem to make it work. Many who reach financial stability, if not outright freedom, and yet never make six figures a year. So it begs an important question. How do they do it? What are their secrets? How do they not just get by, but thrive on less? And speaking of thriving on less, as many of us are stuck at home, some will use this extra free time to become freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's even harder than getting that big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we are giving a big thanks to Jows for supporting Earn and Invest. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N P-O-D. Rose Lounsbury is a minimalism and simplicity coach, Amazon bestselling author, TEDx speaker, and mom of triplets. 
She helps overwhelmed people create open spaces in their homes and minds by letting go of the excess stuff that gets in the way. She also will be joining me on stage as a speaker at the Economy Conference in March 2020. Rose, welcome to the What's Up Next podcast. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on, and I'm really excited to meet you in March. I think it's going to be a really great event. I know. I can't wait. I was practicing my speech today. Excellent. Yeah, I've been doing the same. Justin Pogue is an author and real estate consultant based in San Jose, California. His services are sought after by property management companies, investors, and real estate consulting companies alike. His recent book, Rental Secrets, helps renters find and exercise their unexpected power. Justin, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. We were just joking that as he's sitting in sunny California, I am looking out my window at snow-covered lawns here in Chicago. So automatically, I'm already jealous before we even started the show. Well, maybe I can bottle some and send you some sunshine. Yeah, yeah. I would pay a good deal for that. (laughs) And finally, Jackie Cummings-Koski is a certified financial educator, author of the award-winning book, Money Letters to My Daughter, and tireless financial educator and advocate. She will also be accompanying me and Rose on stage at the Economy Conference. Jackie, welcome to What's Up Next. Hey, Doc. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Are you practicing your speech already, too, or is it just Rose and I who like to be ultra prepared? Well, I was listening to you and Rose, and I'm like, oh, I guess I should start writing my speech so I can practice it. (laughs) I don't know about you, but when I give a talk, I have to practice it for at least a month or two before. It's just what I have to do. Some people can just get up and talk. That's not me at all. Yeah, I do my share of practicing. I just have to bullet it because when I deliver it and I try to follow a script, it does not work well. Believe it or not, I have an episode coming up soon on public speaking where we have three public speaking gurus to talk about it as well as how that relates to personal finance. So Rose, I'm going to start with you. We have a little bit of a motley crew here. It almost sounds like a punchline from a bad joke. A minimalist, a financial educator, and a real estate maven walk into a podcast. (laughs) I imagine this wasn't the group you thought you would be talking with on a panel discussion on a podcast. No, not usually. I'm a little bit intimidated by them, actually, because I think they know a lot more about personal finance than I do. This is a conversation certainly about personal finance, but I have a feeling that we're going to go way past just the financial aspects of trying to figure out what is enough and what isn't and how to thrive on less. So there's definitely a financial aspect to it, but I'm also really excited to talk about minimalism and simplicity and how it ties in. Justin, I think we have to get to the brass tacks if we're going to have this conversation. Numbers are numbers. How much do housing costs play a role in the average person's annual budget? I was actually just looking at a survey yesterday based on census data from 2018, and basically half of all renters are rent burdened. And what that means is they're spending 30% or more of their gross income on housing. So we all know gross income, once you take the taxes out, that means they're spending about half of their take-home pay on housing which would kind of create some difficulty for a lot of people. So that's kind of where we're at at this point in time, just as a country. And I wonder too, if you're talking about 30% and that being rent burden, I assume mortgage burden is pretty similar, if not worse. Yeah, it can actually be worse. It's not just the money that you make, it's also the mindset, how you think about what you're earning and what's really important to you. 
I mean, do you need the 3,000 square foot house? Do you need to be in that specific school district? Do you need to live on that specific street that's walking distance to shops and hunts in the mall and all of that? Or can you think about it in a little bit of a different way and maybe dial back on some of those things? So the mindset of people as, they, as they're looking for housing, as they're searching for that neighborhood to be in, is really important. One of the things I point out in my book is that different neighborhoods have amenities that are already built in, parks and whatnot, and maybe even a community pool. So you may not necessarily want to rent in a community that already has a pool if you're paying for the community one anyway, and then you're also paying for the one that's in your apartment building. Yeah, and I would just like to kind of play off of that a little bit when you talked about the size of a house. So we have a house that we own. It's 1,500 square feet. My husband and I have three kids. And actually at the time um, when they were little, we had a live-in babysitter because it's really hard to have two parents working full-time and have three kids under the age of two and take them to daycare. So we had a live-in babysitter. The space was really tight. And at that time, I thought the solution to my problem was I need to buy a bigger house because I'm like, there's not enough space in here for my husband, the babysitter, the kids and me and our stuff. We're just going to upgrade, right? Upsize. And it was about that time that I started the minimalism journey and I got introduced to the ideas of just living with less. And what I found was that as I decreased down to what we needed, really just what we needed in the house, there was ample space in the house that we lived in. And so I didn't pursue it from a financial standpoint, really. I was looking more at just logistics and is there enough space for this family to live? But as a result, now I own this house. We were Mm -hmm. able to pay this house off because it's only 1,500 square feet. It was our quote unquote starter house that's going to be our forever house. Mm -hmm. And because we made that decision not to upsize and the decision was made not from a financial standpoint, but from a, hey, we have enough space standpoint, there was a huge financial benefit to that that I didn't even really see at the time. So I just think what you're saying is really important when we start looking at where we live from the perspective of what do we really need? And there's a whole marketing aspect to it too. Like as I was listening to what you were saying, you said you use the phrase starter house. That is a loaded marketing phrase. It implies that there will be another larger, better, more perfect for you later on that you then have to move on into. So even just some of the language that we're using pushes us away from that kind of minimalist concept. And it does be that, as your experience shows, you're able to work it out in that 1,500 square feet with six people living in that 1,500 square feet. And the other thing I'd say is part of it is also organization. How do you set up that 1,500 square feet so it works for six people so they have enough personal space within that 1,500 square feet to be comfortable? Jackie, I love this talk about mindset and what exactly we need. I want to take you back to the day when you had just got divorced. You started to think about financial independence. We already talked about housing being a big cost. What were your other spendiest parts of your budgets at that time before you really got a handle on financial independence? For me, it was my daughter because all of a sudden I become a single mom. So I wanted to make sure she had everything that she needed. And at this time, she was middle school, headed to that god-awful high school years where she wants a car. She wants a lot more. She's 
a cheerleader. She's participating in all these sports. So I think that's where I was spending a lot of my money. And in terms of the housing piece, a lot of it is dependent on where you live. Like for me, I decided to keep my home. I mean, I live in a 2,000 square foot, four bedroom home that's probably bigger than I need. But for where I live, I paid just around $1,000 a month. I couldn't even rent for that, to be honest. So when I looked at the numbers, it made way more sense for me to keep the consistency of this home for me and my daughter than to try to move out and try to attempt to find something smaller somewhere else. So the housing piece for me was not that big of a deal, but our kids do take a lot of our money or they can. And I started to get that under control. And how did you do that? Like what changed? <laughs> yeah, what's the secret? <laughs> what's the secret? What changed in the way you thought about spending on your kids? So clearly you thought out housing very much and came to a conclusion and were able to settle and say, staying in the house where I am is the best, most appropriate move. What did you change with the kids? Well, with my daughter, I started thinking about the fact that I wanted to take advantage of these teachable moments, okay? So she's asking me things like, mom, let's go shopping. I want to go get this or that. I would say, honey, I don't have any money that I want to spend on that. Then she would say, well, just pull out your credit card. So instead (laughs) of like, you know, going on this tirade, that is a teachable moment. So I taught her how credit cards work. And one big thing that at the moment, I didn't even know if I was doing the right thing, but it came to purchasing her first car. Uh, Every time I gave her an allowance, part of it went to spending right now, and the other part went to long-term savings. And that long-term savings very quickly came to visions of having her first car. When it was time to get a car, I said, look, you've got all the money that you've saved, and I tell you what, and, and she had her first job at this point. And I said, whatever you save, I will match it dollar for dollar. We try to get our kids to do things, but boy, when they have little motivations like that, she was online every day looking at cars. She ended up purchasing a car and she had double the money that she had saved just by focusing on it. So one, I taught her how important savings is and to reward yourself just by holding on a little bit. That was just one of the best lessons ever. And as an adult now, she's in her early 20s, she has given me feedback on that. And that was one of the biggest lessons that she learned that you work for what you have. And she took advantage of that match and saved her money. And Jackie, I would just add to that because I really appreciate you saying that. My kids are 10 years old now, so I'm looking ahead to those years and they're going to want phones, they're going to want cars all at the same time. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But one of the ways that I talk to my kids about money now is we talk about the reason that we're doing something is because of something greater. So when we were paying off the house and we were pretty aggressive about wanting to pay our house off, I talked to them about why we're not ordering pizza, but we're making it at home right? We're not ordering pizza because I can make it at home. It allows us to pay off the house sooner. When we pay off the house, they said, we're going to go on a big vacation. And in about two weeks, we're going on a cruise for the first time ever as a big reward for us paying off the house. Now we have the extra money we can spend on the cruise. And so Friday's always pizza night. My kids were just asking, well, when can we order pizza? I said, well, we're spending the money on the cruise. So we're not going to be ordering pizza. I said, if you order pizza, it's $25 every Friday. That's $100 a month. And so just trying to get them to see 
how my changes and my choices right now impact a bigger picture. And so sometimes I'll ask, well, can we go to this restaurant? It's not that they never get to go out to eat, but we used to go out to eat a lot more before we started this path. And I would say, well, you know, I would rather put money in your college fund than take you to McDonald's, right? Just kind of getting them to see that there are choices here, right? You can choose based on your values, right? Based on what matters to you. What matters to me is being debt-free, having financial security, being able to send my kids to college, hopefully debt-free with triplets. So (laughs) I'm trying to have those conversations with them now so that hopefully they see that and hopefully they can make similar choices later in their own life. I think those teachable moments are just so important. I can imagine those wonderful triplets keeping those lessons with them their entire lives. They will remember that. And I get to see the fruits of my labor now that my daughter's in her 20s. And it is so exciting. Every time we get together, she throws something at me that she remembered or just latched onto as a kid that I never really knew if she really got it or not. Justin, as I listen to these conversations, I almost think about money the way I think about time, right? If you have a task to fulfill, somehow that task grows to fill whatever time slot is available. Mm -hmm. And I think money can be the same way. We make these big hopes and dreams and they grow based on what money is available. And it makes me wonder, how does our spending really reflect our actual needs versus a deeper sense of something less tangible missing in life. And I bet you see this a lot when we're talking about housing and rent too, because people tend to buy the biggest house they can afford. Yeah, yeah. And actually your question is related to the comment I was going to make on the discussion we were just having previously. There's a quote from The Simpsons that I really love. And Homer Simpson says, I don't need to know what I want. The TV will tell me. Um, so it gets back to this question of focus. What are you focusing on? What are you choosing to make important for yourself? I love the example of we're not ordering pizza because we're going on a cruise or because we're, we're paying off the house. That's our focus. So things that aren't our focus don't get as much attention, whether it be mental attention, time attention, or financial attention. And this especially happens in renting. They decide they're going to go out and look at apartment complexes and they're seeing swimming pools and tennis courts and gyms and parking and all of these amenities. And what's going on in the industry is they're adding all of these amenities to the apartment complex because they're in competition with other apartment complexes. And people see all of these things and they're like, great, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's the type of housing that everybody else at work has. So that's what I need. But having been a manager of apartment buildings, most people aren't using the swing pool on a regular basis, (laughs) certainly not daily. And in many cases, they don't even use it for the year or two that they're there. So it's something that they're paying for all along the way. So the idea is to focus on which amenities you will actually use. If you're really excited about that tennis court that's on your rental property, well, then you need to play tennis. I mean, it needs to be useful for you. That's a very good example. And my only have the things that you would actually use was vehicles for the longest, probably up until my daughter was 18 and graduated from high school. I had two vehicles and my daughter's car. Mm. And it just gave me a sense of security. And when I was thinking about it with Uber and all these ride sharing services and things like that, I had to ask myself, 
why do I need two vehicles anymore? And I really did it when it was ready for me to get another car. And I keep my cars for a long time as it is, somewhere between eight and 10 years. And when I was ready to buy another vehicle, I'm like, you know what? I'm getting rid of both of them. So I ended up selling both of them and getting another car that was a few years old, perfect car that I love. And I think I ended up making money on that deal just by looking at what was really important and what I was really using. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think even this idea of use can be applied even at a smaller scale, right? We're talking about cars and homes. Those are two really big expenses that we all have, but you could talk about your coffee cups this way, right? How many coffee cups are in your cupboard that you're not using, (laughs) right? You got the same three that you love, that you wish were always clean. And then there's all the dusty ones in the back that you never look at, right? It's the same concept as the car, just on a smaller scale. My favorite quote about minimalism is from William Morris. He was an interior designer in the 1800s. And I think what he says rings just as true today. He said, have nothing in your house that you do not know to be useful or believe to be beautiful. And I believe that if we all looked at everything we own through those two lenses of useful or beautiful, we would drastically minimize our stuff because he says that you know to be useful. And we only know something is useful if we're using it, right? Not potentially useful, like the tennis court in the pool. That's potentially useful. But if you're not using it, it's not useful to you, right? Right. Or the items should be beautiful to you. And I think a lot of us are keeping tons and tons of items in our homes that are neither useful nor beautiful. So I think this idea of letting go by looking at what we use is really valuable at all different levels. Yeah. So in this conversation, there are a couple of things that came up to me that were interesting. One is Jackie was talking about having these two cars and the sense of security that having those two cars provided for her. But I think there are opportunities to supplement that with something else. So part of what I talk about in my book is this concept of social capital and building relationships with other people. If you have one car and it breaks down, are there other resources that are available to you to help you resolve that through the relationships that you have? Maybe a friend can give you a ride to work or you know, drive you to the auto parts store to get what you need so you can come back and fix your car or however that situation needs to work out. But having that kind of safety net in terms of social capital and relationships and people who may live around you in the community is extremely important. And it can help with things like that sense of security of having multiple vehicles in case one breaks down or or what have you. And I do have many coffee cups. (laughs) So part of the reason for that is people give gifts. For example, I got a gift from my last job and it was a coffee cup and I still have it. I don't know why because I don't really use it. Wasn't really all that jazzed about the job that I had at the time. You know, so why am I keeping this coffee cup? And I think a lot of it comes from the sense of not wanting to throw things away, not wanting to waste and guessing this is coming out of that depression era, what your grandparents taught you, you know, you keep everything in case you might need it. Unfortunately, in the case of some of my grandparents who have since passed away, that resulted in just a house full of stuff that we had to deal with, go through, clean out, figure out what, what we're going to donate, what we're going to keep, what we're going to throw away, because there's just no logic to keeping all of this stuff in that house or in storage or what have you. For me, I've tried to back away and actually look at the really big things. So we talked about housing and things like that, but really something that could be bigger than that is 
things like taxes and how we are managing our investments. For instance, if I could lower my tax rate, that has such a huge impact. So if I max out my 401k, I max out my health savings account, I could stand right next to someone that's making the same exact salary as me. But if I'm diverting part of my income to my long-term retirement or my long-term investing. I actually just retired in December. So that came in handy, but it's what you do with that money that you have. And I really, really love to look at the big things like taxes is a huge one. Even the healthcare piece, I opted for a high deductible plan for me and my daughter for the last 12 years. And that did so many things. It lowered my taxable income. It lowered how much I was paying for health insurance. And I invested the money that was sitting in there and got compound growth. So I'm looking at bigger picture things like that, that just helps me be a lot wiser with my money. And it goes a lot further. Now the minimalism part and the cups in the cupboard. Oh my gosh, I really have to work on that. Well, Jackie, I can help you with the minimalism part because uh, when <laughs> yay. Justin, yay, when Justin was talking about gifts, that is something that I get asked about a lot, right? We are given things and we say, oh, thank you for this coffee mug or this sweater or whatever it is. And then we sort of keep it out of a feeling of obligation or maybe some of the things you talked about where we've been given some values from previous generations that we save things, you don't throw away perfectly good things, we don't waste, right? And so when you use the word waste, I just thought of the fact that it's a coffee mug, right? Its purpose is to hold coffee so that you can drink it. If it's sitting in your cupboard and that is not happening, it is being wasted. (laughs) It is being wasted right now because somebody somewhere could be drinking their coffee out of that and nobody is, right? So I think sometimes when we think about waste, we need to look at it a little differently. Like what really is waste and how might we right now by holding on to possessions, like think of those houses that you cleaned out with your grandparents. Mm all of those items could have been useful to someone, right? Right. But when you have to go through and clear out a house in a week or two, you don't have the bandwidth to get it to this charity and that charity and this charity. Eventually people just call a dumpster because Mm -hmm. that's what's easiest. So all of those things do end up being wasted because they were held onto so tightly and not used during the person's life. So just a few thoughts to throw out there uh, when we think about waste. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jackie's comment about the taxes, I thought is really interesting because it goes to your mindset and how you're thinking about taxes. So in the general media, there are people complaining about, oh, this person or this corporation paid less in taxes than I did. And I'm working hard every day and all of that. The rules that let that corporation do that are also available to you. You start a business, you can buy a computer. That's now a tax deductible thing. So you got a discount on that computer. It can happen every day. And it's the same dollars that you're spending. It's just you're thinking about it in a different way. So it becomes more advantageous to you than it would otherwise be. And that's the conversation I think a lot of people are not having. They don't have access to that information from a trusted source where they can walk through it easily. For me, I'm an educator at heart. And the things that you just mentioned are so important But a lot of people just don't know. I didn't know growing up. I grew up in poverty. No one invested. No one talked about taxes or anything like that. So I'm thinking if I would have learned some of this stuff earlier, I probably could have retired in my 30s instead of in my 40s. 
it is part of my mission and my life's work to educate everyone, to make this accessible to everyone because they would do so many things different if they just knew. Mm-hmm. So Rosa, I want to ask a little tougher of a question. It sounds to me where this conversation is rounding out is that a lot of times our spending just doesn't match our needs. And if that's the case, we seem to spend a lot of time talking about things like frugality and things like downsizing and things like appropriate use of tax hacks, et cetera. Why are we focusing on those things as opposed to focusing on our needs in the first place? So why are we focusing on having less as opposed to having what we actually want, like looking at it from a negative perspective? That's a really interesting question because I think sometimes the reason people aren't attracted to terms like minimalism or budgeting is because those terms make us think of lack, right? If I think of minimalism, instead of thinking of keeping what I love, I'm thinking of what I have to get rid of. And that doesn't feel good. And when I think of budgeting, instead of thinking of spending money on what I really care about, I'm thinking of all the stuff I'm going to have to do without. I'm going to have to cut out cable and I'm going to have to cut out going out to eat and buying the next pair of shoes. And that doesn't feel good. One thing that I have found, though, is when you actually deliberately undertake the process of letting go of the things that don't serve you, what you find is that you have all of your favorite things. And those could be your physical things. It could be in your finances, right? When you let go of spending on things that don't matter, you get to spend on things that really do. So I think what Justin was saying in terms of it being a mindset switch is thinking not so much about what we're letting go of, but what we get to keep. Because if I let go of spending on things that don't matter. Like I really don't care about eating at McDonald's and I really don't care about, you know, takeout pizza, but that means that I get to pay off my house. So now I don't have a mortgage payment. That is awesome, right? I love that so much more than any piece of Papa John's pizza. And I love Papa John's (laughs) pizza, okay? So I think it's really changing the way we think and that it's not giving up, it's what we get, right? You could think of it like a diet. Nobody wants to go on a diet because we're thinking of all the stuff we got to let go of. Oh, no more chips and no more chocolate, no more cookies. But then if you fill your life up with healthy food, you're actually going to feel really, really good, right? You're going to live longer. You're going to be healthier. You're going to feel good. So if you focus on what you get as opposed to what you let go, I think that's the mindset switch that will make this type of lifestyle appealing and happen for you. That's an awesome point, Rose. It reminded me of something that I used to do with my daughter when she was younger. Now, you know, those of us that have kids, you go into the room and there's just tons of toys and gadgets and things. I started every time it was my daughter's birthday or Christmas, we would go into the room and we would look at all her toys. And I would say, you know, for your birthday or for Christmas, you're going to get a lot more toys. We don't have room for it right now, so we have to make room for it. What things would you like maybe some other kid to play with or some other kid would love it? And over time, when we did that, we did that every year, she would pick out the toys with excitement. She would say, oh, I know some other kid would love this. And it just brought me so much joy to see that she had fun picking out toys to give to other kids And that was a shift in mindset where she was making someone else happy. She had 
empathy for others that might not have as much as she did to make room for her new toys. So I never had a problem with the room being cluttered with too many toys again. I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Justin, Rose, and Jackie discuss why sometimes less can actually feel like more. After the break, we delve into how understanding this concept gives us power in our everyday lives. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Jouse for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust's invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com backslash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credit. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit-like driving position, and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R. USA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Justin, this all sounds great, but what about FOMO? I mean, isn't there a fear of missing out on, on the 3,000, 4,000 square foot house driving the nice car? Yes, there is. But usually when you look at business people who have those types of things, many of the really successful ones they bought those items for a reason. It's related to their business in some way. They may be entertaining clients at that particular house. They may be using that vehicle to pick up plants from the airport or transportation for clients. In many cases, there's a reason why they have those things. It's not just, oh, it would be great for me to live in a 3,000 square foot house. It's this 3,000 square foot house serves a purpose towards the goals that I'm trying to reach. I don't think we're talking about minimalism just for the sake of being minimalist. It's more about having purpose and intention in what you're doing. So there may be people who, for their business purposes, need a 3,000 square foot house or need a more expensive vehicle for that specific purpose. But it's more about that than it is about fulfilling some internal gratification need. There are places where those things are useful and relevant for what people may be doing. And I totally get the images that are conjured up when you talk about luxury and things like that. And to me, I like the word smart better than having less. So for instance, I do have a luxury car. 
I live in a 2000 square foot home that's very comfortable, probably a little bit bigger than I need, but I've done those in the smartest way possible with my vehicle. I buy that about three or four years old. I love to get people that have leased cars and they turn them back in because they're in immaculate condition. I pay for them with cash. So I'm not getting out a loan. I'm not paying interest. And then I keep my cars for about eight to 10 years. And by the end of the day, I'm probably not paying much more than someone that's driving, uh, I guess, a beater or something that, you know, might not be a luxury car. So I feel like I'm living the life. I don't feel like I'm giving up anything and I'm able to get all the things that I want. I think when you mentioned FOMO, Doc, it's a very real thing. I think I used to feel that. I still feel that in certain areas of my life. So I think it's important that we address that many of us do have this feeling of this fear of missing out. I know in the realm of stuff, I used to want the bigger house. I used to want the nicer car. I used to want the flashier clothes. But then as I kind of went on this journey, I sort of adopted a new phrase. And I've I've seen this one, JOMO, the joy of missing out right? There is a joy when you say no to someone else's expectations for how you should live your life. Because if you're constantly trying to live your life according to expectations from society or your friends or the Joneses, that's endless, right? It doesn't matter how much money you make or how many luxury cars you have. Somebody else out there always has more than you. It is a fool's errand to continually try to keep up with other people. It will not make you happy in the end because you cannot have the most cars, the most money, the most house. Someone else will have more. So I started kind of flipping the script in my head to the joy of missing out. Like, what do I get to enjoy because I'm not buying a bigger house? What do I get to enjoy because I'm not spending my whole Saturday cleaning up all my stuff? Does that mean I get two more hours of time with my kids? That's joy, right? I started looking at the joy that I get by missing out on certain things. Now, I'm not perfect at this because I think this concept can apply to all areas of our lives, not just physical stuff. It can apply to accomplishments, number of Instagram followers, number of email subscribers, all of these things. We can continually compare ourselves and feel like we're missing out. But I think what Justin said, it's it's really true, is that you have to kind of look at what your values are. You have to sort of go with what really fills you up and not compare based on what other people are doing. And that's really, really hard because by nature, humans want to compare ourselves to each other. I believe in the American culture, the idea is that more things will make you happy. You were mentioning flipping the script with Jomo. Let's flip the script even further. Is there a connection between happiness and having less? I think there's a connection between happiness and having less of what doesn't matter to you. Because by nature, when you have less of what doesn't matter, you have more of what does. And when we have more of what really matters, we are naturally happier. So I think we fool ourselves when we think that we can have everything. You can't have everything. There are just certain things that nobody will ever be able to have. So I think of how my life used to be. I was working full time. So my time was stretched. I had these three toddlers. So time there was was stretched. Then I had all this stuff that I had to serve. So that was stretched. When I let go of excess stuff, I had more time for my family. And so I had more happiness. I had more of what really mattered to me because what didn't matter to me was organizing all of my shoes and cups and papers and all of that stuff (laughs) all the time. What mattered to me was having time with my family. So I think there is a connection between 
happiness and having less, as long as what you're having less of doesn't really matter. Because if you start decreasing things that really matter to you, it's going to hurt and it's going to not feel good. I think it's all about looking inside and really getting clear on your values, what you really want, what fills you up and what satisfies you. And at the time in my life, when I undertook the minimalism journey, what I wanted more than anything else, as any working parent with three toddlers could imagine, was free time. I wanted time. And I realized the best way to get time was to stop spending so much time dealing with my stuff. When I got rid of a bunch of stuff, I had time and I had more happiness and freedom in my life. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that would be the same equation for everyone else because maybe someone else is not suffering for time. Maybe they want more experiences. Maybe they want more nature. Maybe, I don't know, they want to go to more concerts, whatever it is. But getting what you want, the path of less is a really great way to get what you truly want in life. We're not living in a vacuum. So this fear of missing out, it's not just us looking at other people and comparing ourselves. There are entire industries of people, marketing people, advertising people who are focusing on creating that fear of missing out. And it takes place even when you go to rent an apartment, like it takes place in there where you go and you say, I'm looking for a two bedroom apartment. Then they start asking you all these questions. Then they're trying to figure out what you want. But as you answer these questions, you're also limiting. So in your mind, you you create this fear of missing out, even when it's not even necessarily real. They're like, oh, jeans on sale. We only have 10 pairs left. There's a factory that makes millions of jeans and there's going to be more three weeks from now. So why are we scared of missing out? There's really this filter, that internal filter that we have to develop when we're taking in these messages from the outside about what's available, what might we be missing out? Is that scarcity actually real? Do I care if it's real based on what I'm trying to do? That's not something that gets taught. There's a class on how we develop a filter for these messages that we're getting. And quite frankly, they're overwhelming. I mean, the number of messages any one person gets in a day is it's in thousands. There's so many, I don't even, I can't even count them. Somehow that's got to be filtered through in some way so that I can focus on what's important to me. Justin is totally right. There's like no class on it. So maybe that's why I kind of end up on the education side is to talk about this stuff more. It's a shame that talking about money is so taboo. So there should be a class on it. We should be talking about it more because there's so many people that didn't grow up around that. They didn't grow up around genius people like us that's coaching (laughs) them and telling them all these things that they should be doing. For me, instead of saying it's better to have less things, I like to focus on having the right things. I go to a lot of high schools and colleges and I teach financial literacy and I absolutely love to see these kids light up when they learn these simple concepts and they realize they know more than they think they know. So for instance, I always bring in $2 bills. That's how I first started saving. And I tell them the story and I give away $2 bills if they have great questions. So I enjoy spending my money on getting these $2 bills. And then if I'm teaching about the stock market, I'll have like gift cards from companies in the S&P 500 and I give away those gift cards. Like that's money out of my pocket but I couldn't think of any better ways to spend my money than to help send a message and educate young people about these personal finance things that they probably haven't learned anywhere else. Jackie, I want to jump off that idea and talk a little bit about frugality. 
I saw it written somewhere that your father taught you dignity through mandatory frugality. And as I listen to you now, I think that you probably live a life that's more about frugality by choice. Tell us, what do you teach kids about frugality and what it gives you when it comes to happiness and joy? Well, I don't know if I so much teach them frugality because like Rose said, it's not a good feeling for people to say you're going to take something away or you need to cut back. So normally the perspective that I present to the students is if you work hard for your money, you should do two things. You should reward yourself, go spend it going to the movies or whatever you want to do, but also save it for later so that you can enjoy the bigger things that you might not be able to buy with just one paycheck. So I'm always trying to give them choices and helping them think through decisions of what makes them happy and put the right things in your life. And you don't have to suffer or feel like you can't spend any money and enjoy what you're doing. If you're working hard, if it's for a minimum wage, you totally need to enjoy part of that. That will help you have the motivation to go back and want to do it again. There is a massive thirst and yearning amongst high schoolers, college kids to get this information. So my high school has a uh, luncheon every year where alumni come back, kind of talk about going to college and all of that. So I brought 10 copies of my book just to give away to them. They're living in homes with their parents. Like they're years removed from needing to rent a place, but there's still this interest in how you make that work, how money works. It's there. They're looking for that information. They're looking at their parents and they're seeing stressed out people. They're seeing discussions or arguments about money. We can't go to this place because of whatever's going on in the family. So they're witnessing this discussion that's taking place and they're trying to figure out how do I not do this or how do I do this better? I'm really impressed with high school students today. I was approached by a reporter from a high school newspaper recently, and she wanted to do a story on minimalism. And I thought, really? A high school student cares about minimalism? And so I was talking to her, and she had really smart questions. And I was so impressed with her. But what I really got from the conversation was a lot of the interest among young people in living a simpler life, living with less, has environmental factors as well. Mm. I mean, they're not just looking at their parents being stressed out about money and all these things, but there a lot of them are looking at the environment and saying, oh my gosh, what are we doing to our world? Everything, right? Every physical thing that is created, if it's not compostable, becomes trash someday, mm-hmm. right? It's going to become trash. And I think that they are much more aware of that than I know I was as a teenager. And so they look at minimalism or simplicity, buying secondhand as a way to preserve the earth because they know, I think they know they're kind of being given a raw deal. They're being given an earth that has been depleted by consumerism because what consumerism does not just put us in debt, but it also hurts our earth, which is our only home. And so that's just another facet of this conversation that I think is important. And I'm so heartened to see that young people care about that very deeply. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, this concept of buying used, like there are some really fantastic things out there on Craigslist (laughs) Um, (laughs) that are are available. I mean, this concept of I have to buy everything new from this particular building in this particular location, it has to have this label on it. Yeah, that's changing a lot. I know it's changing for me. In some cases, it's been driven a lot by the financial aspect. If you live anywhere near any kind of major metropolitan area, I mean, 
people throw out things because the color doesn't match, but it's good stuff and you might be able to use it and it might cost 10 or 20% of what it would cost, you know, if you went out and bought it retail. So there's a lot of stuff out there that's available. I'm finding the same thing with my daughter. Like her favorite place is Plato's Closet to shop. And I'm amazed at that. And then there was this fancy camera that she wanted for Christmas and her first place to shop for it was on eBay. So definitely a mind shift there. Yeah, definitely. Justin, it seems like if we pull this all together, power seems to be somewhat of the issue. Having the power to meet your own needs, having the power to be intentional, having the power to save the environment or have control of your surroundings. I was interested to see that power is a keyword for you when you talk about being an advocate for renters. We don't normally think of people who are going out to rent an apartment or a condo or a house as being in a position of power. Mm-hmm. How do you instill that in them? It starts by having a true understanding of what your situation really is, both internally, but also you're dealing with a landlord. This is a contractual situation. So what is the other person dealing with? What are the problems that they're having? What are the situations that they're wrestling with? And how can I have positive impact on those? And that's where that power really comes from. So when people become landlords, they might have been left a property by someone else, or they bought it and thought it was going to be a good deal, or they went to some seminar or whatever. And actually, there's no class on how to be a landlord, why you should be a landlord, what what are the negative things you may run into as a landlord. So a lot of landlords don't know that once you buy the property, you're responsible for everything. Maintenance, legal issues, sometimes environmental issues, everything that goes on with that property, you're responsible for. And most landlords are not prepared for that. And knowing that as a renter, then you know kind of what they're dealing with and the ability to help them deal with some of those issues or give them insight into some of those issues is a source of power for renters. But if you don't know you have that, then that leads to this feeling of frustration, helplessness, and hopelessness, which is really permeating the whole housing discussion that we're having right now. Um, And it leads to this animosity and this kind of bitterness between renters and landlords. And really, when it comes down to it at the end of the day, both renters and landlords need each other. As a landlord, the renter is really your partner in making your investment the best it can be. Looking at it from that perspective, it's just a lot less stressful and it's a lot easier for both of them to get what they want out of that relationship. Rose, does minimalism and simplicity bring you power? I absolutely think that it does because what it does is it allows me to trust myself a little more. I trust myself more to know what's important because if I can go through my closet and I can say, these are the things that are important to me and these things aren't. I can apply that principle to my time, right? These are the activities that are important for me to spend my time doing. And these are the activities that aren't. And I can apply that principle to my finances. These are the things that are worth spending my money on. And these are the things that aren't. I can apply it to my relationships. These are the people who are worth having in my life. And these are the people who aren't. So that process of trusting myself enough and being comfortable enough to let go of things that don't serve me gives me the power to create the life that I want in all sorts of different aspects of my life. And it's been very interesting to me to see how this started with me decluttering some towels eight years ago. 
I let go of a bunch of towels. And now I find myself letting go of habits, right? I've let go of health habits that didn't serve me. I've let go of spending habits that didn't serve me. I've let go of habits of busyness that didn't serve me. And the person that I've become and that I'm continuing to evolve into, I know is directly related to that day when I said, you know what? I don't need all these towels anymore. And it resulted in a career change and becoming an entrepreneur and writing a book and all of these things. And I wouldn't have been able to see it then that that was a powerful act. But anytime you look at your life and you say clearly from your soul, this no longer serves me and I'm letting it go, that's an act of power, whether that's with your towels or your relationships or your money or your time. It is a powerful act every single time that you do that. Jackie, is being financially educated something that brings you power? It absolutely does because I grew up in poverty and raised by a single dad with six kids. And we didn't have very much. And the main thing that lifted me out of poverty into the middle class and led me towards financial independence and retiring early was my financial education. Once I opened that door, I learned so much. And boy, I started moving fast because just the light bulbs kept coming on. And I figure if I can share that, if I can light all these light bulbs and all these other people that might have grew up just like I did, how quickly can we create a financially literate society? So I get excited every single day that I can teach someone about what I learned about personal finance, money management, financial independence. and I would have never in a million years thought that in my 40s, I would become financially independent and retire early. And I retired back in 2019. And I wake up every day and almost pinch myself. So yeah, it's pretty powerful. And I just want to share that power. One of the themes that's running through what all of us are saying is that this concept of trusting yourself to not only learn the knowledge, but then to actually go out and use it, whether it be to negotiate with landlords or whether it be to make that decision to throw something or give something away that's that's cluttering up your life or whether it's the decision to go to that financial seminar and learn that concept, that concept of trusting yourself to help lead your life is really central to what all of us are saying. So I want to go back and rewrite history. I'm sitting at the amusement park and next to me is Justin and Jackie and Rose. And this gentleman vehemently says, that can't be done. There's no way you can thrive on less. Rose, what would you have told him if you were sitting with me that day? I would have gently encouraged him to consider the possibilities that it may be possible. I would have asked him to look at the barriers that he thinks are keeping him from living that type of life and see if there is a possibility there that he's not seeing. Because I think when we flat out say that something cannot be done, it's because we're looking in a very narrow perspective. And so I would hopefully, if he wasn't too much of an angry gentleman, (laughs) be able to ask him some questions to get him to look outside and see, well, what if this, what if that? And I think when we start to ask questions like that, that's when we really open up the possibilities to live whatever kind of life we want to, because the honest truth is any kind of life you really want is available to you if you're willing to look at those wider perspectives. Jackie, what would you have told that gentleman if you were sitting next to me? 
gee, I'd probably say, wow, who's living off the less? Are you talking to me? <laughs> but I, I would probably circle back and just say, you know, I kind of just got rid of the things that I didn't care about and didn't bring me value and focus more on the things that did. And I guess at the end of the day, it would look like less, but I basically just got rid of the things that I didn't care anything about. Justin, how would we have given this gentleman a sense of power, a sense of control over what was happening to him? You got to start with him where he's at. So I had this experience where uh, I take vitamins and I just mix water. Some people mix it with juice and I tried it with my sister and I gave it to her the way I like it. And she didn't go on that journey. So she didn't like it. So kind of start with him where he's at. Like, what are you spending money on that's preventing you from making some changes? And even the smallest change, like going to Starbucks every day and buying a $4 latte, we can start there. It can be something really small to just start the wheels turning and creating some financial bandwidth. So it's not necessarily about even about cutting things out. It may be about finding ways to... uh, Buy what you're buying now with less. You know, maybe using promo codes online to reduce the cost of something he's buying now. But just find that one little thing to start that process. And when we start with people where they're at, then they can start down that path. I intentionally called this episode Getting By or Thriving on Less, but it's pretty clear to me after talking with you guys that actually you're getting by with more more intention, more education, more knowledge, more power. It certainly doesn't sound like a life that is lacking. So I wanted to give each of you guys a chance to tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you on the internet. Rose, I'll start with you. What's up next with your life and where can we find you? So what's up next with my life is that I am going to be speaking on the economy stage in March in Cincinnati. So I'm super excited about that. And you can find me online at roselounsbury.com. That's R-O-S-E-L-O-U-N-S-B-U-R-Y.com. Jackie, same question. What's up next for you and where can we find you? Well, what's up next for me? The most exciting thing is that I just started a master's program in personal financial planning and financial therapy. I'm thrilled about that. Uh, That's at Kansas State University. But if you'd like to connect with me, you can just go to my website, which is moneyletters2, that's the number two, dot com. And I am super excited to be joining you and Rose on the economy stage in Cincinnati, Ohio. I would love, love, love to see Uh, A lot of people from the FIRE community that I've talked to online is going to be so exciting. And Justin, last but certainly not least, where can we find you and what's up next in your life? What's up next for me is I'll be releasing my audiobook version of Rental Secrets um, in the next couple of months. Just completed a book trailer, similar to a movie trailer, but for the book. And that will probably be released in the next couple of weeks. And I'm working on a speaking at a Cal State East Bay in April. And to connect with me, you can go to rentalsecrets.net and you can also look me up on LinkedIn. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank my guests, Jackie, Rose, and Justin. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, 
I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast. Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T.com. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. Man, you guys were easy. I didn't even have to use any of my questions. <laughs> you guys were all on it. Like I couldn't, I was like, oh, I better ask this question. Next thing, someone's hands up. Oh, I better ask this question. <laughs> you know, but, uh, Rose and I uh, coordinated. We actually had lunch last week. We both live in Dayton, Ohio. Did you know that, Doc? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, we, we were like, we're probably what, 10, not even 10 miles from each other. Probably. Yeah, I used to teach at the school that her daughter yeah, went to. My daughter to. went to. Uh, yeah. How funny is that? Yeah. So tell me honestly, did this conversation go at all in the direction you thought it would? Not really. No, because I, we get the whole minimalism and the, it's almost a dirty word for some people, minimalism Mm -hmm. and frugality. And, um, I think people probably thought it would focus on that. I, I kind of thought it would because I was like, why does he want me on there? I'm not a minimalist and I'm not a frugal. I'm like, what do you want? I'm driving a luxury car. I live in this big house. I would be, some people would like blast me out of the fire community. <laughs> but that's also important. See, it, and a lot of people don't understand. I invite people on the show and a lot of people are like, that's not my topic or, you know, I don't fit that subject. I'm like, well, Maybe you do. And in a lot of ways, having people of different viewpoints and different concerns makes it a much better conversation. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.